The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How's it going? It's going pretty well. It's another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. My God, we're on a, we're on a run. How many? It's like been oh, it, almost a year. You know what? Numbers don't matter. It, it you know what? Numbers are numbers are just a number. They they are yes. They're illusory. They don't mean anything. Math is fake, and uh, nothing means anything. <laughs> I, I I disagree about math means nothing. <laughs> so, I think the people who made all the gear we're currently using to record this would disagree about my math statement. Need a little bit of math. Uh yeah. Okay. Also, so also every time I edit. Anyway, go on. Yeah. So oh, who is on the show today? So, oh my God. Today is an incredible show. We've got a collection of interviews, all relating to documentaries from the Sundance Film Festival, including your former boss uh, Ron Howard. We got uh, a recording. Of a conversation Did he talk he about had. me a lot? Did he, he was like, no, you know, it, I learned this great thing from no, Ben Rock back in the day. No, I, I didn't get to interview him, but we do have some clips of it. Uh, I, I expect him in like public interviews to just drop my name a lot because yeah. I'm kind of a big deal. You, you are kind of a big deal. Yeah. So, so uh, but no, Ron Howard is great and he talks a lot about Rebuilding Paradise, his new documentary, and he shows a clip and we'll probably play a little bit of the clip. It is a powerful, powerful documentary. What's the documentary about? It's about the rebuilding of Paradise, California after the massive fire that destroyed it completely. Which was only like... A year and change ago. Exactly. They moved really fast on this. Oh, wow. So, um, and Imagine then, Entertainment is one of those companies, honestly, that's extremely nimble and I think very forward thinking about what their company gets into. And I'm not just saying this because I, I, well, actually, because I got to work for them and I had the, the pleasure of, of uh, and, and privilege of being allowed to work for those people, I got to see a little bit inside of, of how they operate and, and I, <laughs> how I, the sausage is made. Yeah, well, and and it ain't sausage over there. Those people, they are all true believers. And, uh, you know, uh, Brian Grazer, who I I only met a couple of times, but Brian Grazer, by all accounts, is like one. You always think of a producer as like, you know, the guy counting money in the back. But really, (laughs) Brian Grazer, a lot of the creative ideas and a lot of the a lot of the cool paths they go down are his ideas. That's awesome. And, and really, uh, creative producers, that's how it should be. They, exactly. They, they should be involved. Okay, so uh, we'll do a quick overview of all the rest of the stuff, too, that, that's going to be on the show, because it is a powerhouse, incredible show with kind of something for everyone. And then we can dive it's back into it. literally everything for everyone. Yeah, that, that's what it is. If you are interested at all in documentaries, if you've ever experienced the power of a documentary, the magic of a documentary, this is this is going to be a really great episode. And, you know, you. we don't talk enough about documentary on here. Uh, you know, we did have Shauna Hagen in here. And yeah, we've done a little bit. I mean, we've done yeah, some yeah. stuff. We've, we've, had a, we've had a few documentary types, but. Oh, uh, yeah, we can't can't forget Jake Swantko for Icarus. We, of you know, course. So, oh, yeah, yeah. I guess I guess we've done OK. But I think documentary form is, you know, one of the most primal forms of filmmaking. And also, uh, you know, documentaries of form has sort of come into its own over the last, you know, 20, 30 years. You have the rise of people like Errol Morris and also people like Michael Moore. Ken Burns. Ken, well, Ken Burns. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is that. It's built into iTunes is the Ken Burns effect now <laughs> in your titles. So it's. I think you mean iMovie. Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. What did I say? You said iTunes. iTunes. Oh, yeah, I did mean iMovie. <laughs> but um, <laughs> it's all an Apple thing. Yeah. <laughs> iMovie. Yes. I, <laughs> it's baked into the i stuff. No, but uh, there's so much you can do with documentary. I mean, like even movies like Man on Wire or whatever. Every now and then a documentary comes around and just blows my mind with how it can redefine what documentary means because really and errol morris is one of the people who said this it just means nonfiction film searching for sugar man same same people also another yeah what what an incredible movie so 
So uh, uh, before we get into that, uh, what is our close focus for today? Okay. Close focus for today. Our uh, George Foyt close focus. Sorry, George. <laughs> yes, he came in here and gave me some grief about not having his name in front of it. Well, I so. mean, you know, he, did you know, tra- yeah. he had it trademarked. Oh, my God. Okay. So I'm, I'm now out of spite. I'm not going to say George's name. So, uh, I'll no. say George's name all the time. <laughs> oh, I know. It's going to be you and me fighting over He's this. He's amazing. Anyway. Okay. So the uh, close focus, you wanted to talk about vertical video. We, we were just before we hit uh, record on this episode, and I, I forced you to stop. You wanted to talk about vertical video and what what vertical video means. Well, you know, like up until now in all of film history, film was either the image was either kind of a square, but usually slightly horizontal square in the landscape mode. Right. Yeah. If you were to take a eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper, it probably wouldn't be up and down to be sideways. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. Even if you go back to the very, very early days. And then, of course, you know, the Academy aspect ratio uh, is four by three. Correct. And four by three is I feel like when you look at it now, when you look at like a TV show from, you know, the 1980s, it looks like a square, but yeah. it's still somewhat rectangular. And it's, it's a little wider. Yes. And it's in landscape mode. Yeah. So we've had a recent innovation. I mean, recent since 2007 with smartphones and then video on smartphones in that there's a lot you can record video in vertical mode. So it's still basically a 16 by nine aspect ratio like your TV at home, except and it's vertical. I'm just going to immediately jump in for all of the entertainment purists out there. Why? Why can't you just turn your phone to the side? Well, and, and yes. why? I've even given our good friend who watches our son a lot. She'll take vertical video of him. And, and I've said, like, I've given don't her, don't record the videos of my child vertically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what do you what kind of family do you think we are? Anyway, um, the horror. But a lot of the technology companies out there, uh, Snapchat being a noteworthy one of them, have taken note that a lot of, you know, the digital natives, the, you know, the Gen Z's, the the youngsters, they basically look at their phone vertically. That's how they want to look at their phone. And so uh, I had recently a pitch meeting pitching uh, like a narrative project to Snapchat and Snapchat, that's how they do all their productions, are vertically. And I also... Uh, would they make you shoot on a phone or would they make you get an Alexa and turn it on its side? I think it depends on the project. You know, like if you're shooting something that is supposed to look like it was shot on a phone, then you should probably shoot it on a phone or something with at least a really small sensor so that it, it kind of gives you that vibe. I think if you, you know, they're doing more cinematic stuff and I think, you know, you might shoot, you might either shoot on like an Alexa or something turned sideways, or you might just shoot an 8K image and then, and just while you're shooting, you've you got, crop the, it out. Yeah, yeah, you've got those lines. Quibi, who's set to launch, I believe, in April, they're doing like serious narrative stuff. It's Jeffrey Katzenberg's new venture. And Quibi's thing is that it is horizontal or vertical. And they say it's both. Yeah. Yes. So uh, what it will be is... A compromise is what it'll be. I'll tell you right now, that's a compromise. Well, what it means is that filmmakers who are making shows for Quibi are going to have two deliverables. One's the horizontal and one's the vertical uh, thing. And uh, to that end, even Adobe Premiere now has a special thing that they built into their latest update that allows you to extract, you know, square, whatever whatever you want out of your video and, and export those things. And it has kind of an AI that tracks what it thinks is the important part and you can change it. But like, you know, if, if it's a chase scene and it's a, you know, a wide shot of a guy running across the field, it'll like track the guy running across the field in vertical or square. If you're putting it up on, uh, on Instagram. Instagram. Yeah. I, I think it's actually interesting that there are all these things, but there was recently a press release that I read that I'm going to butcher the man's name, uh, Timur Bekmabatov. 
Yes, the uh, the director he made Night Watch and also was executive producer. Day Watch. Of, he yeah. made Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. He made uh, he's he he made the remake of Ben Hur. He's kind of a world cinema. Uh, he's he's a figure on the stage, and he has announced that his next film is going to be done vertically. His next feature film will be done in vertical aspect ratio. So if you go see it in the theater, you're gonna have these. I'm guessing it won't be in this, theaters. This nine by sixteen, so it won't. It just won't be a theatrical release. I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be made for smartphones. I don't know who it's being made for. I'm sure it, there's a press release that would explain that to me. But he's basically making something designed to be watched vertically. Now, I think it's an interesting. Uh, the phenomenology that creates the landscape mode for us to watch movies. To me, that's an interesting thing to discuss because it's like, wh- why do we do that? Why have we done it like that versus vertically all this time? And because it's better. Well, I think it's because it's more like how we see things. You know? Sure. Like I'm. We don't see a vertical strip when we walk around. It's no. true. Yeah. Well, we also don't see letterboxes on the top and bottom of of the frame. It's just you know, like <laughs> if you wear the right sunglasses, you do. So, <laughs> but, but we're but we're oriented towards the you know t- towards yeah, the horizon. Field. Our eyes are not stacked on top of each other; they are alongside each other. Exactly. Yeah. That being said, you know, having watched some Instagram video and stuff like that, it's like you know, there's no reason you can't tell a compelling story in a vertical mode. It just means that things like two shots are a little trickier to do properly. Now, Instagram will do these things where they do these exotic 24 style split screens. So it'll have like a 16 by nine square on the top of the frame and then the close up on the bottom and stuff like that. Though also at least their IGTV enables you to turn your phone and actually just look at it in the correct aspect ratio in the correct correct widescreen, correct widescreen format yes uh, whatever uh, old man yeah get off my lawn <laughs> <laughs> okay so so, so so okay so so you had this pitch meeting they want nine by 16 not correct. 16 by nine what do you think that does to your storytelling what do you think that's I mean, I, I honestly think that for any kind of storytelling, having a box you're trying to fit something into, whatever it is, whatever, however its orientation is, I think it forces you to be creative and think, how can I use that in an interesting way? The concept that we were pitching them, which I can't really talk about. I bet it involves horror. It, it does. Yeah. It lent itself to either orientation, really. It, it, it lent itself to looking like it was shot on a phone. So, so that actually would bring a level of verisimilitude to what we were pitching in the first place. And I don't really feel like it benefits either way to, to, do it, to do it the other way. I do think it's interesting, like, you know, with the web series that Bob DeRosa and I do, 20 Seconds to Live, we take that to, to film festivals. We just got into a couple of film festivals recently with it. And it's like, you couldn't take these to film festivals. And one of the things I always think about technology-driven storytelling hmm. is when the technology is upgraded or if the technology moves beyond the way that you've kind of architected your whole idea, what then happens to the thing you made? And I will cite as an example, a friend of mine who has uh, an ad agency in New York, they did a really cool interactive car commercial where you'd give them your phone number and it was like a choose your own adventure story that was like, it was like a 20 minute ad for this car. And it was, had great production values. It was beautifully shot, beautifully directed. And the character from within the story would call you while you were watching it. And like, they would just kind of cleverly have him turned away from you or whatever while he was talking to you for part of it. And then turn around strategically, but it would be like, well, do you think I should go here? Do you think I should go to the laundromat or do you think I should go to the desert? And you'd say desert. And then it it would use AI to figure out what you said and it would guide the story. Right. So this was all designed to go on web browsers to sell cars. 
Yes. Okay. This is all designed to go on web browsers like five years ago. And it's good filmmaking. And it's an interesting experience. And it's an interesting way to tell a story. If you take Marshall McLuhan into this now and this whole medium is the message thing, I'm going to oh, I'm gonna walk out that door. I, I wasn't bringing that up. Okay, good. Okay, go ahead. What I was going to say was I was talking to my friend about it. And he was saying that because of the way that all the web browsers have been uh, upgraded since then, that you can't, if you go to that website, you can't do it anymore because the technology is gone. And it's like all that work just poof. Whereas I can still show you my student films. They don't necessarily have the resonance that they had to me at the time. Or, you know, like you can watch, I mean, you can watch a movie from any period of time. Gotcha. There's no longer that the ability to have a robocall essentially from a character in this thing that you're watching. And, uh, correct. Okay. Gotcha. But to me, I think about that when I think about anything that's super technology driven. So like in, I'm just making this up. I have no inside information. Say Snapchat gets bought by CBS and they shutter this division after you've made all this vertical video. Where's the vertical video go? How do you show it to anybody? How do you? Yeah, it's linked. It's linked to, well, I mean, what you end up with is like that crap you see on the evening news when someone records something on their phone and then ends up making the news, end up with these uh, either black bars uh, vertically along the side or like weird split screens stretched on either side. So it kind of, yeah. And and obviously you can still watch that stuff, but as you get more and more technology focused in your storytelling, which I'm not discouraging anyone from doing, and I think it's really interesting to do. And, you know, like, look, some stories, like for instance, this car commercial was for one model car and it doesn't matter that you can't watch it anymore to the car company. It would matter to me if I were the filmmaker, you know, like it would matter to me if I directed it or, or something like that, or if I'd created it. Cause I would, if, if I was the architect of this whole interactive thing, I would want some way to show it to people because there's something kind of cool about it. Whereas like we can still watch silent movies that were filmed over a hundred years ago. Uh, we can still watch them and they still look like they looked and yeah, every, technology and storytelling and everything has changed, but we can, and so we're not accepting them the way somebody at the time would have accepted them, but we can still watch them. Uh, the vertical orientation, I don't see movie theaters putting in a vertical movie screen, but I guess it wouldn't be that big of a deal to mask. It's, like, kind, it's kind of a big deal. That's a lot of masking that would have to go in that basically I don't see AMC deciding they're going to convert 150 screens to vertical. Yeah, but it's just literally just a bunch of curtain. It's not, you know. It's true. It's not. And in, and I've actually gone to see movies now in digital projection where it's a widescreen movie and they don't even bother masking it. They just kind oh, of. Yeah, that's actually the standard now. Is just projecting yeah. it in empty screen on the side. I would say like, oh, the all, all the shitty theaters don't do that. But unfortunately, it's not all the shitty theaters. It's just now like all basically all the theaters like the 99 percent don't bother to mask. So, so. so I mean, here's here's what I don't know. And it's a thought experiment. But would a vis- a vertically oriented movie play theatrically? I don't know. It might be an interesting way to do it. it. At the very least, it makes you think about all the things, all the crutches that you have as someone who uses landscape mode versus portrait mode in your own filmmaking. Do you think that you would be more apt to watch a nine by 16 documentary than a narrative? I mean, I don't know. I mean, like, look, I mean, this is the documentary episode and uh, spoiler alert. None of the documentaries that we're talking about here were shot nine by 16. But do you think that that is a legitimate format for documentary? I mean, I think it's a legitimate format for I mean, look, the only real rule there is in the entertainment business is don't bore me. Right. Like and even then sometimes super boring movies do really well. I think vertical orientation versus horizontal orientation. Like here's the thing about it. If I'm looking at something that looks that looks vertical, I immediately relate it to myself holding a phone and looking at reality. So if somebody were to make a documentary 
in a vertical orientation. I think I would look at it and immediately I would have an, an empathy for the eye that was making that film. Would you have the same empathy for smooth scan? Because that's the whole reason that a bunch of people want to have smooth scan on everything is that that looks more like reality to them. Well, so. those people can fuck off and die. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure I understand where you're, where you're coming from for this, because if you're telling me that 16, uh, nine by 16 is totally acceptable and it's acceptable for all formats, there's a whole bunch of people out there who say, well, smooth scan's acceptable and it's acceptable for all formats. I mean, well, here's the thing. I think if you're watching Gemini Man and you're watching it at the high frame rate, that's the frame rate that Ang Lee intended you to watch it at, whether you think it's good or not, whether it works for you narratively or not. And, and really, that's that's the... Is, is that the same argument for vertical video? Ex- to me, that is the argument for vertical video. Does yes, because that was the intention, not that there was technology that was arbitrarily made like this to fill a screen and that we should all should follow suit. I think that if the filmmaker intends to make something and they shoot it vertically and that's the intention is to make it and it'll be interesting to see what Timur does because my guess is as a very innovative filmmaker that he is he will figure out ways to use that that we aren't thinking about and in a way it's kind of the wild west like we don't have a visual language that's baked in for vertical framing in the same way that we do for landscape mode as I keep calling it and I think that it'll be interesting to see if it's an experiment. I mean, everything is an experiment. Everything is like, let's try it and see if it resonates. I do think that I don't have a problem watching vertically oriented video provided I'm watching it on my phone. Gotcha. Because you don't have extra screen that's hanging off on the side. Yeah. And and when you have extra screen hanging off, then you go, ugh, vertical video. And like I said, I think that I'm used to shooting video. I mean, I don't shoot a lot of video, but I'm used to like even just like looking at images on my phone that are vertically oriented. And so when I'm watching video that's like that on my phone, it immediately makes me feel almost like I made the film. Like it, it's a different kind of intimacy with the, with the subject matter, if that makes sense. Hmm. Okay. Gotcha. I think this horse is dead. So I like I don't know what else I have to to uh, to bring into the sixteen by nine by nine by sixteen uh, debate, except that uh, there are people out there who seem to think that it's it's totally fine to capture all form of video that way, and people like me who think that there should be no format of video that is that way. Yeah, I mean, I I see where you're coming from, and I think that when you see video that's shot vertically, it evokes the eye of the kind of person that you just described. What's that? The, the kind of person who thinks that that's an appropriate way to do it. And I think that that's how they would choose to tell whatever story it is that they're telling. I'm not saying that, like, we're going to start shooting all of our movies vertically. I just think it's an interesting experiment. Okay. Well, uh, I, I hope it's, a, it's an experiment that uh, goes away and that people make phones <laughs> that are easier to then just uh, hold sideways. It, it, and it, so. would, it would make sense, like, if you just put the camera in the middle of the phone sideways, then it would just force people to just do it that way. Correct. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, let's get to Ron Howard. Essentially, what you're going to hear is a conversation that uh, we recorded where he talks about the project. And also, you know, this is his first Sundance in all of his years. This is the this first. This is his su- first, first. How is that even possible? It, it, he's always had something going on. He's never, he'd never been to Sundance before this. He seems like the most obvious person to go to Sundance. And I'm sure he skis too. I think he might be back after this. So, but, uh, good but yeah. for him, man. Now, I, honestly, and I've, I've chatted about it a little bit on the podcast. I just can't say enough good things about Ron Howard. He's honestly one of the most wonderful people I've ever worked for. Yeah. It was, uh, it, it was the same sort of format that we did with Jackie Chan last year where, uh, Jackie Chan came in and sat down and had a conversation we recorded. Um, and, uh, it's a lot of fun. He's, he's a wonderful to listen to. And, and here it is. Well, without further ado, Ron Howard. Well, I knew a little something about Paradise because I've, I've got a lot of relatives from, on, from Cheryl's side of the family in Reading. And her mother 
who's passed away, lived for, I don't know, the last five years of her life pretty much in paradise. So I, I had a reason to, to be there quite often and, and like it, it's appealing. It's, it's not a tourist destination, you know, it's not a hub, but it's a great little town. It's, it really is Americana, you know? And I, and I really relate to the people there and, and appreciate them. So like a lot of folks, my first set of relatives, they came out unscathed out of what, what was called the, uh, the car fire in Reading, big fire, big portion of the town destroyed, not the whole town. And then shortly, paradise is on fire. And this time, 95% of the town is destroyed. And I was, I was just, in my own distant way, kind of, kind of shell-shocked. But like a lot of people, you, you get numb to seeing these images, right? I began to just wonder how you cope with this thing, and that's the question. That's the only question, and I and I've I've really enjoyed, you know, getting into the documentary world. I find it fascinating. I find it really uh, satisfying. Uh, but I've never made a verite doc, and I went to Justin Wilkes and Sarah Bernstein, who run our documentary group at at Imagine, and said, "What about what's it going to be to rebuild?" and rebuilding paradise. What is that, what will that be? And they said, well, let's send some cameras and begin to find out. So I went with the crews, crews came in, and we, and we began to follow individual stories and begin to try to answer that, that question without knowing that it would ultimately, to a very large extent, be a story of resilience. But this is not the kind of thing where you're sitting around with your writer and your studio heads and your producers and eventually the actors, you know, figuring out what the, th the themes are and how you're gonna, how you're gonna shape the story to deliver on a premise. Th this is discovering it and this is, this is, what, we, this is what we found, among other things. In, in this discovery of going, you know, a couple of times a month, sending, you know, field producers in, um, Zan and Liz are here today, uh, yeah, great, great, great documentarians. And um, uh, we began to follow the, certain stories. And again, you know, thank you for the courage of just allowing us to keep re-entering your lives. And I think they began to see that we weren't just interested in the drama and the trauma, but, but really, you know, on a human interest level, what was, this, what was it gonna take? What was it gonna be about? So we were naturally attracted toward the people who were taking action. And if there's a theme here, I think it's that showing up really matters in life. You know, and it certainly matters in a circumstance like this. I think they, 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 it fueled them to an extent and they're able to pick up other people as a group. There's a kind of a, a momentum in that. But things like tri Christmas tree lighting ceremonies and Gold Nugget Days parade and, and town gathering are vitally important and so is showing up at the town council meeting and having an opinion, forming an opinion. But the other thing that they really gave us is a, a really interesting object lesson, if you look at it, in problem solving. Because they didn't come together and just fight about it and go away. They didn't stonewall one another. They got things done, and they did move the needle. Whether it was City Hall, uh, or the state, or the federal government, but also it was, it was just them saying, this is gonna be our fate. This is, this is what, and, and, and sort of the, the best ideas were winning. Uh, in, in a way that's also very American, by the way. It was very impressive to, to all of us and also very emotional because that, that's one reason why we start with the, the crisis. We show the, we show the fires and we show what it feels like to be there, what it might have felt like to, to be in it. But periodically, we go back to that kind of point of view, first person storytelling to re remind audiences 
that the, the people you're following just not too long ago survived that. You know, not everyone survived. They did. They're grateful for it. But what's, what's the scar tissue? I think it begs the question for, you know, anyone who's actually not in it, but is looking at it f with a little bit of distance. Y you know, as I said, what would you want to happen? What, how would you want to be supported? And how, how, can, how can this be prepared for? You know, obviously, science tells us that global warming is, is changing things, we, and it's, and it's it materially occurring. We see it. It's just inexorably becoming more and more uh, a factor of life on the planet. And what does that mean? How do, you, how do you prepare for it? Because if you just wait to react, whether that's a power company or a state or a community or a homeowner who doesn't want to clear their trees and trim and so forth, if you just wait and react, you know, there's no guarantee you're not going to be exposed to a, to a trauma, but your odds are better. And once you ha once you have lived through that, there is scar tissue that is is it's not a it's not a month, it's not a year, it's it's lives lives changed. But we also make the point in the film that it is about a sort of a new normal, and that it could be anything. It could be lightning. It, you know, it could be it could be a campfire. It could be a cigarette. So yes. In this particular circumstance, it was a shame that those power lines weren't buried years ago, and there were other things that, that could have been done that would have entailed expenditures and all kinds of things that would be controversial and difficult to focus. So that's the question, is how, does, how can society and communities decide to anticipate these things and agree it's enough of a problem to try to head it off? And of course, that's always going to be um, an imperfect process. The, the interesting thing, back to that problem solving, is you know, look, people rally around a crisis. It's inspiring what, the, what the, the citizens of the town that we followed and what we observed. And these are just the people who, you know, we discovered. There are, a million, there are great stories, remarkable stories. And, and there's a real display of, of heroism there and, and, you know, behavior that you'd really admire. And not as much, I expected actually more, more chaos, more double dealing. And this, what I, I didn't see it. And I, and I, and I, you talk to the police, you talk to others, you're not, not getting much of that. A few looters and a few things, but not, it was pretty remarkable. But all of that said, so many people just evaporated. And so a situation like this also demonstrates the, the frailty in a community. And everything gets heightened. And there were a lot of people there who were just getting by. And uh, for them, that's another level of devastation. And a lot of those people vanished. There were no, you couldn't get them on camera because they were gone and who knows where. And uh, their lives flipped forever. And so again, got to keep thinking about the fallout of these things and, and what kind of preparation is, is realistic. But the problem solving that they demonstrated to me was very interesting because they, they rallied. But one thing is, you know, you can forget about all your differences when you really all agree what the problem is. And I think one of our problems is that when there isn't a crisis, that we can't sometimes, and this is human nature, quite decide what the problem is. And is, is it enough of a problem to act upon? And I think this is what, uh, you know, this is why citizens need to participate. They need to speak up on their level and beyond. Uh Brian Grazer and I have always appreciated them. Brian, you know, actually started making documentaries. Michael Rosenberg, who's here, who's one of the co-chairmen, he was the first producer of a documentary for us. But in our old iteration of what Imagine was, 
we weren't really allowed to do it. It was almost like we had to, you know, hey, look over there, we've got a nice, this, is, this stars Jim Carrey. How's the, how's the documentary going? Uh, uh, and and they, they weren't necessarily, you know, our, our, the, the people who were, who were paying our overhead didn't particularly want us putting a lot of time into that. That's really changed as, as, as documentaries have also become much more um, mainstream and, 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 you know, lots of people have discovered the, the power and value of documentaries and the truth in them, you know, and, and uh, it's been incredibly uh, exciting for us to be able to really throw ourselves uh, into it in all kinds of ways. And it's been one, one of the real, real pluses with Imagine. I, look, years ago I thought about what is the definition of entertainment? Well, it's not just escapism, it's engagement. And so I think a, a story that engages in a, in a riveting way, it stimulates the, the, the imagination, it fuels your curiosity, and um, you still have to be thinking about the brand of storytelling and the steps along the narrative path that make something engrossing, that keep your interest, that sustain the suspense, that, that, work, that you know, develop the narrative questions. But one of the things that I've just tried to do my entire career is, is just understand the subtle differences of all these genres and tones. And I think it's another thing that I'm really loving about going this next step. Did a lot of projects based on real events, going this next step and actually making a verite documentary, which is something I hope to do much more of, and yet applying what I've learned about storytelling and ways of conveying feelings, ideas, and emotions to audiences. And, uh, and I, I find that they're a little more related than I even would have guessed they might be. All right. That was uh, Ron Howard at the Sundance Film Festival. Maybe one day Ron Howard will come on the podcast. I'd love that. That'd be great. I'm kind of dreaming, but you know. You never know. He's a cool guy. We, I, we'd probably have to go to him. He, that's he, okay. Yeah. I, I know where their offices are, and I know exactly how I would set up our gear there. You know, one little aside, I don't think it made the the recording that you just heard, but um, Imagine Entertainment is now getting into all flavors of different types of entertainment, including kids programming and documentary and things like this, because the restrictions... Uh, from the old guard, the old studio system of like, you know, we're putting you in a box and this is what it is what we want from you have kind of changed. And now they can pursue all kinds of stuff like this, which is great. That's that's awesome. I mean, I, f I feel like they've been on the leading edge of a lot of stuff like this. And, and that's not changing. Yeah, they're still doing it. it. I'm, I'm really happy to see. And I'm, I'm happy that he finally went to Sundance. Me too. All right. So we got to pay the bills. All right. So here's a commercial for Aperture. Aperture has done something with their flagship products that I think is interesting to talk about for a moment here. Uh, racing stripes? No, it's not racing stripes. And it's not uh, just, you know, cool like remote controls and things mm -hmm. like that. They took something from still photography and they brought it over to this, the continuous lighting cinema space, which is a Bowens mount, a Bowens mount, which is the, the mount that is currently used uh, or the mount that's used on the front of all the aperture products that has started to become now a thing for cinema. I see I'm not a still photographer person. Please explain to me what a Bowens mount a is. Bowens mount is uh, essentially a bayonet mount is, is another uh -huh. way to describe it, but it's got three sort of male tabs and it's got a female receptor and you, you insert the two and twist and voila, it's a quick way to get your light modifiers on and off of your, oh. your light. So uh, what, Aperture did is they took this thing that worked really, really well from the still photography side and was very beefy and they brought it over to their cinema lights. And I'm not, not only are they making great products, but I'm starting to see some third parties that are making products that are in this mount. Well, does that mean that you can use that? That was my next question. Like, could you take old Bowens mount 
accessories and stick them onto Aperture products. That is exactly what you can do. And that actually is creating a lot of... Like uh, what, what kind of products would come in a Bowen's mount? Uh, beauty dishes, reflectors, things like this, mm-hmm. so that you might shine the light in. It might get reflected then back into a large parabolic shaped sort of light box nice. and then you'd have a vi- an extra soft light a lot of people we don't talk about a lot of the, the physics of light but you know the the properties of light changes the further distance it travels before it reaches your subject and so a lot of these things are designed to like oh you know what we're going to shoot the light the other direction now it's going to come back reflected onto your subject yeah. rather than just direct and because aperture went and uh, a adapt- and i'm not sure exactly why they they made the choice initially but there's this huge sort of library of relatively inexpensive light modifiers that you can now put on your aperture 300s uh, 120s all of their sort of different lights that are in that format that have a bowens mount which is which is great sweet yeah so uh it may have been a i don't know if it was an arbitrary decision but it turned out i think to be a really good decision and uh they make a bunch of high quality products that go in that mount anyway so you can also just buy the aperture stuff which works great Excellent. That's cool. Yeah. Way yeah, to go so, aperture. Yeah, it was it was a it was a good plan. All right. So back back on track, back to our, our, our show here. Next up is Michael DeWick and Gregory Kershaw from the Truffle Hunters. I have to do a little preface of this of the Truffle Hunters. It is possibly the most beautiful documentary I've seen in a long time. It is really it's, it's really, really pretty. The uh not only is it really, really interesting content uh and i hate to, to call a documentary's subject matter content it, it, it's it's just you know the the era that we are in now everything Ugh. has become content but i disagree uh, go on <laughs> it's the subject matter is really interesting and they, they what, have what wonderful, is the subject matter it's um, it's going to be explained so I, I don't want to completely give it away right now Fair enough but it's really really pretty and the whole time you're talking, that the whole time in, during my interview with them, just imagine that all the images are that, that are going through your mind are like some of the most beautiful stuff you've ever seen. It takes place all in Italy, and it's very, very artistic and well done. And without further ado, here is the team behind the Truffle Hunters. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Michael Gregory from the Truffle Hunters, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, so gentlemen, amazing documentary. I mean, re- really, really wonderful to watch and beautiful, beautiful images. People talk a lot about young man's sports, like, you know, oh man, that's a young man's sport. Clearly, the artisanal Alba White truffle hunters, uh, this is not a young man's sport. This is an old man's sport. And you give us a little window into this world that is typically... Uh, completely unknown, heretofore unknown, which is uh, an, a remarkable accomplishment. Can you talk about a little bit how this came to be, how this all came together? Well, it just, the project kind of came to us. Uh, in August 2017, we were both happened to be in the Piedmont region of Italy separately on little family vacations just to get away from our last film, which we was edited uh, in uh, Copenhagen. And they were in this tiny little village, maybe of 60 families. And we started to hear stories about these old men in the woods at night, these truffle hunters that no one's ever seen. And, um, you know, the more we you know, snooped around, the more we found that this, was a, this could be a possible great story because, uh, you know, at one point we were in a, we were in a bar and you know, on the wall was all these handwritten in pencil accounting ledgers. It went from 1941 and it said, like, it said truffle, how big it was, and then it said how much the price was, and then it went all the way to current. And we asked the bar owner, so what is this? He said, well, I want a truffle. I put 50 euros in that little box outside, and when I come in the morning, there's a truffle in the box. And we said, where does it come from? He said, 
So that, you know, then the two of us went back and spent uh, weeks there trying to dig into this place and see if we can find these, the, the elusive truffle hunters. And, uh, but it took, you know, it took us probably a year to find out who these people really were. Everything about this world is secret. Where they sell the truffles, it all takes place in black markets, three o'clock in the morning. Besides the church? <laughs> Besides the church. I mean, it, it, these, the, the whole, the whole, where you find the truffles is secret. People, people have these elaborate maps. The truffle hunters have these elaborate maps of, of where they find truffles every year, and they keep the exact location, the exact date, the, where the moon was at that particular point. Humidity, and, yeah. And they guard these things. I mean, they're, they're prized possessions. They won't, even, they won't share it with their best friend, and they won't share it with their children. It's... it's um, Deepest secrets. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that, is that we, we realized when we met the truffle hunters, we asked them, um, why is it you that can find these things and nobody else? And each one had their own hypothesis. One said, well, I go three days after lightning strikes. Oh, wow. Another one said, well, we consult with water diviners. And we spent quite a bit of time water diviners because they said the truffle gives off an energy that other, other funguses don't. And it worked. I mean, believe it or not, it worked. Wow. There was also, we heard about, you know, witches and warlocks in the woods, too. And at some point, we went, tried to chase a witch for like two weeks to find out who she was. Remember? Because they said they, they consult with the witch and find out what the conditions are to write for hunting truffles. I mean, the interesting thing we learned from the water diviners is that, they, so there's, according to the, our water diviner friends, there's two types of energy that kind of flow through the world. And there's this kind of positive energy, which is the water that they f- normally find. And then there's this other current of energy, this sort of negative current. And um, tr- that's where you find truffles. And that's where um, that pigs are attracted to it. And so, you know, it, it, there's this, this whole world of kind of darkness and night that truffles are associated with. And that was kind of another element of the story that kind of that made it so attractive to us this element of mystery, this magic that, 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 um, that only certain people had the knowledge to uncover. And also, I want to add one thing, also the charts that they're carrying, that Greg was referring to, they don't leave them out of their sight. They go to the market with those charts, they go to the bar with the charts, they read the newspaper charts, they go home, they, do not leave, they carry folders under their arms and not leave them alone. Please uh, inform our listeners about how much one of these truffles might, might fetch at, at, uh, at auction or just well, then, in, a, in, a private, in the private well, black market. At the auction that's in the film, that truffle sold for $100,000 for one truffle. So, so really, you have people who uh, their entire career, their livelihood is uh, sneaking out in the middle of the night mm-hmm. uh, and rooting around through the dirt mm-hmm. uh, to find potentially the $100,000 truffle mm-hmm. and, uh, and sell it. And, uh, well, you think, but it doesn't mean that the truffle hunter is actually the person getting $100,000. As you see no. in the film, we have truffle dealers who are the middlemen. and uh, They're the ones who get the 100000 Yeah, and they control the market. And the market shifts. We don't know how it shifts or who controls it. There's like three people. Everybody in the film controls the market of a truffle. It changes like every hour. It's how, much, how many truffles they found in the morning and what the demand was like in the afternoon. It's one of the most beautiful documentaries I've ever seen. And I've seen a lot of documentaries, and it is stunningly beautiful. And I know you used a lot of natural light. Natural light was your friend. And I have to imagine that setting up any sort of lights with these people in secret was a complete non-starter. You had to be fly on the wall. You had to build their trust. And you had to set something up that probably seemed as inobtrusive as possible to, be, to do what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. What did you use to oh. capture the, the capture these images that, that met all these criteria? That I, I know some of it you, you strapped up, you know, a 
uh, an action cam onto yeah. a dog's head, which mm-hmm. let me tell you is so much fun. It's mm-hmm. so much fun to, but for the, for the primary portion of the, of the movie, what, what sort of camera setup and lens setup were you using? I mean, the, the secret uh, starts off with spending a ton of time with the people we're filming. And on most days, we would film you know, a single shot. That's after spending a lot of time shooting nothing with, with the people who were filming. And it, we spent a lot of time to figure out exactly where we wanted to put the camera in a way that would capture whoever we wanted to capture and allow them to sort of forget about the camera and also capture all these beautiful material elements of their lives that we were filming, whether it be in the forest or their home. They're figuring out a way to, to bring the audience, create a frame that would bring the audience into this moment the way that the way that we experienced it and give them the same feeling that we felt. And it, all, it did require, there was actually probably more, I would say there's probably more lighting and more work to, to, done to shape the light um, than it might appear at oh, first. Light shaping, and, I'm sure. But, yeah, I, but yeah. I didn't think you were sh- setting up uh, 10Ks no. or... No, we were, most of what we do was blocking lights. We yes. had a lot of floppy. We had, we had a van, a little blue, well, it was a big blue van that the two of us, were, I'm driving and he's co-piling and it's just us. And we have 16 giant floppies in the back. We have all of our, you know, all of our lights back there, like a ton of C-stands. Mm-hmm. And, um, but we spent a lot of time just blocking light. A lot of yeah. time our sound guy was carrying C-stands for us too. But we also, that's another reason why the film is deep focus. You know, we chose that because so you could observe and slow down. And that was a, that's what, that's what they wanted us to do without saying anything. Mm-hmm. They would make us sit and wait. Yeah. You have wonderful wide shots too yeah. of, of, of people tromping through, mm-hmm. uh, through the brush and mm-hmm. through, uh, these incredible scenics. Some mm-hmm. of them like, you know, uh, mist in the air, early morning type of stuff is, is what it looks like. And, uh, and we wait for that. I mean, that know. took, you know, we, I mean, like yeah, Greg was saying, a lot of days to. we just sat and yeah. didn't shoot. Yeah. We'd sit in the van and wait. We were up, we'd get up at probably 5.30 in the morning and, and be back at like 2 o'clock in the morning and, and just waiting for, waiting for shots. We spent, you know, we spent hours driving through this area. We spent hours in conversation about, you know, in that time we were talking about the story and how we could best capture it. And we, we also, you know, we spent hours just looking for the, the right, when we were shooting exteriors, looking for the right place to film. Sometimes that meant walking through the woods and looking through the forest but a lot of a lot of the shots sometimes we would just we would be driving through the countryside looking for a place that that felt like a storybook Mm -hmm. and and we'd find it and then we would have to wait for the light to be right and then we would come back to that place and sometimes the light wasn't right we'd still have to come back so you would never shot in sunlight you never shot in sunlight yeah i was gonna say uh, there's not a lot of sunlight in this movie so but but uh, there is sunlight that you see or daylight i should say daylight more likely coming in through windows in particular you see you see Mm -hmm. a lot of that so when you found these locations and you found the right time and the the situation was perfect was there then a shuttling of cast of, of your of your subjects or did it also happen to be the exact places they had to tromp through in order to get to where they were going we, we always went to where you know, where the characters lived we went to their communities and you didn't have to stage any of they don't well, they no. don't like to leave their village oh, I mean okay. even if they were it's just as an example if somebody was had lived in a village five miles outside of Alba which is considered a town um, most of them had never been there. They just go, they, they're self-sufficient, they have their farmers, they just go to the market once a week in the street markets and they just get meat, mostly. Um, and that, that was also our calling card with our truffle hunters I mean, because it was very hard first to get establish you know, r- real relationships with them, but then we realized we live above a butcher, we're gonna bring you know, 20 pounds of sausage and salamis and wine, and that kind of helped kind of break the ice. They knew, they knew we were the food guys. <laughs> I mean, they, 
they live, they grow a lot of their food and they're used to a very specific diet. So like one day we went to, we went to a, a normal supermarket and got ch- cut chicken, the kind of chicken that, well, that yeah. most of us eat on a daily basis. Take, take for granted. Yeah. And they, they said that they wouldn't eat they, it. They wouldn't eat it. And they, they will only, they call it, uh, well, the translation is, I guess, chicken chicken from the land. And mm-hmm. it's only chickens that are actually grazed outside. And they're, it's a totally different kind they're, of they're meat. Yellow. And they're yellow. Yeah. And they're, you know, they, they, they just don't have that kind of crazy unnatural plumpness that most of the chicken that we eat but they won't they won't touch they won't touch food that comes from a normal uh, you know what we consider a normal supermarket I can't really blame them actually though no. no. I mean no. it's the like chicken, they certainly know something so. yeah but the chicken is you know the head the feet the whole everything the whole bird. and they, they eat every single part of it they put it all in a pot and cook it it's all right. So uh, deep focus techniques. You uh, have we're working with natural light and shaping light with flags. Yeah. And we were sometimes we were lighting though. There are some scenes where we would we we had sky panels. Everything is. If we did light, I don't think there's a single scene that we lit with more than one light. No, never. But we traveled with two sky panels and a and Just a Kina flow. That's it. And what what size of camera was this? Was, was, was it a small? It was an camera? Ari. No, it was an, an Ari. Yeah. Alexa Mini. Alexa Mini. Okay, yeah. cool. And then, and Kept it pretty stripped, yeah. pretty stripped down with Ingenue zooms. Well, it's not stripped down. You yeah. have to put all the sound uh, inputs yeah. into a thing. It's really yes, of course. Ah, uh, you're you recording single camera. system sound into the camera. So. Yeah, and uh, yeah. we had yeah, and they were recording external also. But yeah. yeah, and then we had a yeah we had an Ingenue uh, 16 to 40 millimeter zoom lens that was kind of like always on the camera and we occasionally had uh, a the big, big zoom. 25 to 250 for the longer zoom I was shots. Want, I was wondering about that. I knew yeah, you we I knew a cliff. You, I mean, you had a, a really great looking movie too, uh, too but I, I also figured like you, <laughs> you you had to be incredibly versatile and then of course uh, and I knew you mixed formats when I saw the dog but I didn't know if you yeah. were like hey we're using this sort of like smaller camera for this we're using this bigger camera for this yeah. and yeah. Went, okay. Yeah, yeah it was always yeah. that and then yeah. we you know with the, the doggy cams we took us two months to develop that harness I mean, we, we had welders working with uh, you know back harnesses with uh, with gimbals that didn't make people made him sick. Yes, of getting, so it, so it's a gimbalized. Yeah, we tried. Oh, no, we tried, tried because yeah. the Sony. We thought the Sony picture was actually a better picture for us, but it didn't yeah. have an internal stabilizer. So we ended up going to the GoPro. Oh, okay. And uh, there, that has stabilizer. The, there was a Sony that had it, but uh, yeah. we're, I don't want to get in, in the weeds here. But yeah. I will tell you that the moment of when the dog shakes his head back and forth. <laughs> Great. Oh, it's, it's so wonderful. I mean, not to mention everything that sequence leading up to it is great. And you know, we haven't really talked about in this interview at all the dogs. Um, yes. the, the dogs end up becoming a central character in in, in the story. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the big, uh, and I'm not I'm not going to give away uh, too much of a plot device here, but there's some uh, controversy with the dogs. Mm-hmm. At least yeah. some of the people that are trying to protect their their turf, mm-hmm. and so they they take countermeasures. They are aggressively attacking yes. via, via the use of poison mm-hmm. these dogs. Yeah. So talk about sort of uh, this other character in in the movie, these dogs, and. Uh, I'll tell you, it brings a lot of heart to the story. There, there were there were people in the audience I know hanging on every single yeah. every single dog moment in there. So yeah. tell tell me about that. But, I mean, I, when we started making the film, I, I we knew that the dogs were important to what the truffle hunters do. But the more time we spent with the people that we were filming with, we realized that they weren't just working companions. They had these really profoundly deep relationships with their dogs, and they shared meals with them. I mean, they spend more time with their dogs than they spend with any other human being on Earth. By far, they're out alone in the middle of the woods for sometimes for 12 hours alone with their dogs. Mm-hmm. So they, they've developed these bonds, and in a lot of cases, they even, they what we discovered as we were filming, as we were 
were listening to the microphones that we would put on the dogs that when they went into the woods, we dis- discovered that the truffle hunters, they have, a, they have a secret language with the dogs. They all have, at first we thought they were speaking dialect. And then we, we, we talked to our translator and said, no, this, these, are, these words don't mean anything in Italian. They don't mean anything in Piedmontese dialect. They have their own language that they speak with dogs. So through that, we realized, well, okay, they're, they're characters in the story. And we, we realized how important they were when their names came up on the screen today and everybody just stood up and started clapping. But we, you know, we, we had to bring, we wanted to not only show the relationship that the truffles had with them and, and, and experience the dog from the truffle hunter's point of view, but we wanted... To, to bring the audience into their point of view. And that's where these dog, the, the dog camp idea came from. It's like, how are we going to make the audience feel like they're, they're the dog? It's- so we, we lived right near a cobbler in Italy, in Alba, who was very patient with us to try to develop these, uh, these harnesses for the dogs. That would, it really took us two months to finally figure it out because the dogs have different shape heads. And also we wanted to show the nose at certain points. So the harnesses were a combination of leather sometimes. And we had, a piece of, we had to work with a sheet metal person, to a piece of flexible metal. We had to work with rubber people and vinyl people and riveters. But everybody in that town, they're craftspeople. So for us, it was like a pleasure to go to somebody mm-hmm. and say, well, here's, I'm drawing a picture of the, you know, the, the profile of the dog's head. Can you match something and get the ears to fit through? But Greg was saying before about microphones. I mean, we're very conscious of sound throughout this entire process. So we did have a little pack and microphones on the dog's noses separate and also they didn't want us going with them in the woods obviously so they just that was another reason why we had the cameras in the dog's heads so we could see the secret spots and see actually how they were interacting like we see Sergio going we thought it was a a horse in the woods we had we could we never saw him in the camera the dog turns and we're like it's him that's his language (laughs) yeah 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 we didn't do that in public Uh, okay so one final question really I I wanted to ask you there's a shot where one of your subjects comes out through a window Mm-hmm. How did you know that that he was going to be coming through that window at that time to get to get ready to have that to have that that shot? Because uh, well, it, it's it's a wonderful moment. I'm not going to say anything else about it. I don't want to give it away, <laughs> but it's a, it's a great moment for your story. Well, Maria, it's Carlo and Maria. Um, we always ask Maria, how come Carlos is always able to run away and you can't ever find him? And um, we talked about it at night that she faces the wall and he faces Tatina, where she's out. He's outside the door. And, uh, you know, we were waiting one night. Uh, we'd wait there and wait and wait and wait, and nothing happened. <laughs> and we came back another night, and we waited and waited and waited, and then uh, there was a door. I mean, to the left, there was a, we, were by the, by the, we were by the door waiting, and we heard, and it was the window. So we ran the camera over to the window, and the shot was actually crooked. We, just, we corrected it in post because we had to plant the tripod down so fast, and then because we knew Tatina was barking, and we knew he was coming through the door, we thought. And then it was, uh, you know, he came out. Uh, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on the show. It was, it was, it was really a pleasure. Uh, where can people find you? Are you on any of these socially things? Do you Instagram or <laughs> those, that stuff? It, or, or is there a, a, website, a website for the movie? We that have, you'd truffle, like to, we have yeah. an Instagram for Truffle Hunters. Yeah. We do. We did. And we have, we have a Twitter, but nothing's on it yet. Yeah, we, we posted one thing about the Sundance premiere, but we will, we, we will be better yeah, with that. We finished the film. Like Friday. Friday. Yeah. I mean, we, just, we <laughs> literally just finished the film. We were in the mix um, right up until the last moment. So, um, wow. so we're, we're a little behind on some of that stuff, but it, it, it should all be up and running soon. Gentlemen, thanks again for being on the show. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> 
All right, now I need to see the truffle hunters. You do. So, absolutely. In fact, everyone needs to see it. And uh, it, Everyone. It, everyone should see it. It's great. Right. It's really good. It's, and, you know, uh, I know you're not a foodie, and it is about truffles. I but it is you. you should totally see it. You will enjoy it, regardless of the fact that you won't eat truffles. I, I'll eat truffles. I just don't. You're just not going to, I don't, I don't You'll go see a documentary about truffles. I just don't seek truffles out, but if truffles are there, yeah, sure. Oh, oh yeah. After, get, you're going to want to eat truffles after this. All right. <laughs> All right. So, so Ben, uh, do you remember Ren and Stimpy? Of course where, I remember where, Ren and Stimpy. Where were you in 1991 when Ren and Stimpy became a, a thing? Uh, well, I'm obviously dating myself, but I was in college. All right. And so. I, rem- I remember the first time I saw the commercial for the log. Yes. It's log. It's yeah. log. It's big. It's heavy. It's wood. Yeah. yeah. So there is a whole story about the creation of Ren and Stimpy and sort of the aftermath of Ren and Stimpy. Because Ren and Stimpy was an incredibly influential cartoon and still to this day but like john kirk felucci kind of disappeared after that he did but he he didn't (laughs) also well okay here's my question because i know you're going into the happy happy joy joy documentary yeah yeah do they talk about some of the more uh outrageously disturbing and troublesome parts of john kirk felucci of course they do so he became kind of a one of the people yeah, one of the the me too's one of the yeah he, he he was kind of you know pointed out as being uh creepy gross person and it's kind of made me a little hesitant to uh seek out his material uh i believe that this documentary does a good job of talking about the art and i think it does a good job of talking about the person and for some people uh there will be no separation of art and and person but uh there is a tremendous number of people who worked on ren and stimpy who were responsible for ren and stimpy and as much as john k has his name on there as the creator of the show you're actually then throwing out the work of a lot of other people, which got that, to that. That is always true. It, it, it's always the case. And I don't want to disparage, you know, the work of all the other creative people. And uh, I kind of actually think it's uh, it's admirable for some of the people who did have to endure. And I will say in, endure of John Kay. It's it's kind of nice to hear their story. It's nice to hear basically what they were able to do. And, you know, subsequently. And that documentary was essentially I'm not going to give give anything away here, and we we talk about, it, but that documentary was essentially finished when the stories of John Kay come out. Oh, so they then had to go back. Oh, really? Yes, and then they had to. They felt it was uh, important to add. I don't uh, think you could tell that story without talking. That's about right, that stuff. and if, and I mean, can you imagine if, like 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 trying to release that documentary then after? Well, you just be reviled, and your documentary would go on the shelf, and no one would release it, but you would have finished it. Well, uh, they finished it and Good. it's at Sundance. And here's a wonderful interview with the uh, directors of Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy, uh, Ron Cicero and Kimo Easterwood. Nice. Ron and Kimo, uh, thank you so much for being on the Cinematography Podcast. We're here at Sundance 2020 and you've got a movie here called Happy, Happy, Joy, Joy. Now, being that I'm of the generation that understands happy, happy, joy, joy, I got it immediately. But for everyone else who is not, can you give us a quick rundown about what your documentary is all about? Our documentary is about a cartoon that revolutionized the world in uh, animation, art, culture. It came out in 1991. And it is uh, known worldwide. What else? It was really the precursor to Adult Swim. I mean, yeah. it's, a, it's a cartoon that was put on a children's network, but ultimately has a lot of subversive qualities, adult humor. It's not a children's cartoon at all. And, <laughs> um, and the title of that, that cartoon is? Ren and Stimpy. Yes, yes, Ren and Stimpy. Ren and Stimpy, uh, infamous, actually. Uh, I remember in, in my youth when I saw it, I remember watching it dumbfounded with a bunch of friends going, 
this is a kid's show. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and and your your documentary covers the, the full history of that show, the creators behind it, and uh, the controversy that emerged later in the process. That's right. Tell me about a little of the, the, the trials and tribulations of putting this together. I'm assuming funding. Uh, you you had some... I, I Did I see it was a, there was a crowdsourcing? Uh, there? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So we did version one of the movie. And when I say version one, I mean a completed film that celebrated the series. It did not have John Kay in it because he had refused to be interviewed. But we had a number of the artists participating and kind of filled out the picture of who John was. We crowdfunded that part of the film or that film through Indiegogo. And then the news broke about John and his moment in the Me Too controversies and he, for, for our listeners uh john admits to uh having relationships with underage women yes that's correct and that that news broke about four days after we were finishing the credits of the first movie oh really yes so so, so that meant that you had to go back and completely change your movie completely stripped it down john eventually agreed to be interviewed it still took us six months to get him on camera which we did and then we also interviewed robin bird who is his accuser lived with john as an underage girl uh, in uh, the late 90s so after the show but nonetheless it, it's tainted his legacy it's tainted the show's legacy and of course we had to address that and we were very fortunate both of them agreed to go on camera yeah, you, you guys got tremendous access. You got uh, all the people I think you would want to really hear from in a documentary like this. Uh, tell me a little bit about your divisions of labor. Anytime there's a, 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 a directing duo, uh, a lot of people are not exactly sure how um, what seems like one person's job who has to keep all of these things straight in their mind now has to share that with another person who's not themselves. So tell me about especially now having to have to go back into change and, and do all this. Who ends up doing what and how do you guys communicate amongst each other? Well, we, before we're about to interview somebody, we have quick questions written up. We come up with, you know, whatever it is, 15 questions, and then we'll go back and forth email. And then we kind of go like, well, this one, we should really add this because this would be a great thing to ask. Okay. So we'll add that in. And then we'll kind of, it, it ends up being, you know, the final 15 questions. We both agree on them. And then when we get to the interview process, um, since I'm shooting, Ron is the interviewer. So Ron will ask all the questions. O occasionally, I'll throw something in. But for the most part, we got it pretty down. We, we agree pretty, pretty well, actually. So um, that's kind of how the interviews go. Ron asks the questions. And then if, if I happen to have anything at the end, I'll throw it in. But for the most part, that's basically how it works. What about sort of like on a content level? Because, I mean, you're dealing with, uh, I mean, do you guys ever find yourselves uh, disagreeing over what needs to appear in, in what order? Yeah, or? we've agreed a few times, but, you know, you just, you have no choice. You have to get through it. You have to work it out. You have to see the other person. Sometimes it's a give and take. It's like, okay, well, you can have that, but then, like, can we put this in, you know? And, and that's kind of how it works. But ultimately, you need to get through it or else... You'll never get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and we've also known each other for 25 years. So the, the process, no matter who does the film, it's just incredibly challenging. I mean, you're writing while you're paying an editor. So it, it's not, especially a story like this that takes a sudden right turn. The information that occurred or the, the, the situation that occurred with John was after Ren and Stimpy. So if you're telling a story, you're now dealing with a different chronology.
chronology? How does that not only fit into the chronology of the show, but also the narrative arc of your film? So um, it's an incredibly challenging process. And, and just the fact that we've been friends for so long, we're, you know, we bring very different experiences and we're very different in our working methods and our styles. And, and it just, we just dovetailed. It was, it was fantastic. Yeah, you, you, you learn people's strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And, and my major weaknesses, like the communications and all that. And since Ron was producer and he has all that experience, he's, he deals with you know, reaching out to the, the people and booking the interviews and all that. Whereas I would completely have like the wrong address and the wrong <laughs> phone number so you know I know where where I need to step back and you know so I, I got to bring up the final chapter of, of your movie deals a lot with um, the controversy and the controversial uh, figures and where does that kind of leave us all now how do you come down in the art versus artist uh, how do you separate someone from the work that they've created or, or can you or uh, is it always linked you know, some people can and some people can't, and there's nothing wrong with either of them. You know, some people have a very deep attachment to the show. We have interviewed some people over Skype that would watch this show in the hospital bed that their father is dying of cancer and, and both laughing. So, you know, how do you ask a guy like that to just hate this show now? You know, you can't. So, you know, it's an individual thing. You know, some people can and some people can't. Well, and you also have to realize with Ren and Stimpy in particular, there was a whole group of artists that this show is their legacy. So it's, yes, John Kay was the leader, but ultimately the show would have never gotten done to the level of expertise that it was had it not been from these other artists. And what you see in the film is kind of the, the time when John had the backing of all these extraordinary artists and then when he came back and did the show without the artists or the majority of the artists, how much the show really suffered. I, w I want to change gears just, just slightly here. Tell me a little bit about what's next for you. I assume that uh, it's going to be all about the distribution of this movie for uh, the immediate term, since you're here at Sundance. But uh, do you already have other projects in the work? Are you already like uh, down the road on something else? Yes, yeah, so we have two celebrity subjects that we're in conversation with. We've done initial research, and they both have extraordinary stories. You know them from their public image, but they have socially uh, relevant stories above and beyond what you know about them. So we can't quite talk about it yet, but it will be a fascinating ride. <laughs> so where can people find you online? Do you guys have a, a website dedicated to this uh, to this movie? Or do you have um, an Instagram? Fa or? Facebook is the best. It's just at Ren and Stimpy Doc yeah. is Facebook. Of course, Instagram is the same. Uh, Twitter is the same. And then our personal, you can find us at, at Ron Cicero. And uh, yeah, I don't have Twitter, but just uh, Instagram. Yeah, Instagram is Chemopix, K-I-M-O-P-I-X. Well, fellas, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Are you LA based? Are you both? Yes. Uh, well, we hope to have you on the show again. That'd be great. That's, yeah, where, that's where we're love at. To thank you, Beyond. Thank you so much. And now, short ends. All right. Well, I will make an effort to see that movie. So, Ilya, it is time for our short ends. Our famed, internationally acclaimed <laughs> short ends. Inter we won. We won eighteen international awards for our short ends. There, uh, are there international awards for? There no, aren't. Okay, great. Uh, so, so Ben, what's your what's your short end? My short end actually kind of sticks with our our documentary motif today, which is uh, on Canopy, which I've talked about here, uh, which is the streaming service that's like Netflix, but you can get it with a library card and it's yeah, free. The public library, Netflix. So anyone who's paid very close attention to me and taken lots of notes and probably has some pie charts and graphs about what I like and don't like on their wall right now, like, you know, uh, Beautiful Mind style. 
Mm. Not to Ron Howard. <laughs> um, knows that I'm a giant fan of documentarian Errol Morris. Loved Wormwood, loved, loved a lot of his stuff. And last year he had a documentary that was, it's called American Dharma, that had a really hard time finding distribution because it is basically a one-on-one interview with Steve Bannon, who oh, is God. the controversial architect of everything that is kind of Donald Trumpish. And is, you know, arguably, is he a fascist? Isn't he a fascist? Well, we know that he's a giant fan of people like Evola who were fascist thinkers. I'm not saying that that makes you a fascist, but uh, in the Jeff Foxworthy, you might be a fascist if stand-up comedy routine, I think he would check several of the boxes. (laughs) Not redneck. He might be a fascist. (laughs) Yeah, I got it. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I'd heard that there were problems getting the movie released. Now, the thing about Errol Morris is, he is want to do interview based documentaries with people who he does not agree with, like uh, the Fog of War, which he won the Oscar for, uh, where, which is nothing but an interview with Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense under Lyndon Johnson, who is arguably the guy who started the Vietnam War. Also, one of my favorite movies of his uh, is a movie called Mr. Death, which is about a guy who fixes electric chairs and other execution machines who ends up becoming a consultant for a Canadian neo-Nazi group. And uh, they send him to Auschwitz and he takes samples and in his mind uh, proves that what they say were gas chambers were not used as gas chambers in, in the Holocaust. And then in the documentary, he actually interviews the people who did the test and they were like, they didn't tell me what I was testing for. So I took this rock sample and pulverized it. And, you know, like 70 year old uh, residue that was, you know, uh, whatever, one nanometer on the surface would have been completely destroyed if it had been there at all at the time. Anyway, it's a great documentary. Uh, he also did one with uh, Donald Rumsfeld. So American Dharma is a one-on-one documentary. It is just him interviewing Steve Bannon mm. uh, with some, um, as always is the case with Errol Morris, just gorgeous reenactments. He's thrown away the style where uh, where he uses the Interotron and people are looking right into the camera. He's not doing that with Steve Bannon. It's it's uh, That might be too much. Shot well. I don't know that I want to look into his eyes. I might get hypnotized. Um, Anyway, so it showed up on Canopy, and uh, I watched it. And uh, you know, three or four days later, I was able to get out of a fetal position that it had put me into. Um, (laughs) Rocking in the corner, yeah, scratching at the walls. (laughs) Because it would be easy to dismiss Steve Bannon as what I believe he really is, which is the fat drunk guy at the end of the bar who's saying a bunch of you know crazy fascist garbage that is meaningless except he's got a whole lot of people who listen to that yeah garbage and he ran for a long time he ran breitbart which is a huge right-wing media outlet and you know he is a really smart person and in his way actually kind of charming and i think that that's the interesting thing is that he errol morris kind of brings the humanity out of him, which which is also one of the criticisms of the movie and one of the reasons people were kind of pissed off about it at the festival run. And I think that this is maybe a sign of our times, which is like we are not allowed to humanize the people who we disagree with. And I obviously disagree with Steve Bannon on like pretty much everything in his worldview. But last I checked, he is human. So he's human. And, you know, I, I, I'm not I'm not saying that his voice needs to be heard that much. But if I want somebody's crazy pants voice to be heard, I think Errol Morris is like one of the best people to do that. Hmm. Like, I really appreciate how he is able to suck the the essence of the worldview out of him and present it to us, not to convince us that it's true, because Errol Morris 
outspokenly in the documentary repeatedly talks about why he thinks this is all bullshit but at least you it enables you to have some empathy for a point of view that you don't agree with and i think that that's better than just vilifying him and turning him into a, a monstrous you know uh creep and 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 hobgoblin I, I i don't like the hobgoblinization of somebody who i passionately disagree with who i passionately think is doing the wrong thing and putting all of his efforts into it uh this is not part of the documentary but i just want to mention for anyone who thinks steve bannon is cool i'd like to remind everyone that he wrote a hip-hop othello adaptation that in in hollywood and he thought he was going to be able to get it made as a movie he's he's a failed filmmaker basically oh, this is what happens to filmmakers when they fail so <laughs> oh, no so what you're saying is is like you know you, you should have something to fall back on besides uh right no, i'm, right I'm saying speech and... find a find a filmmaker who's failing and like you know like like bring them into like uh, like a safe space like yeah. you know, like a like a, a recovery program we should, for we should filmmakers. Train to, to like, like 12 step we should train them to like write and direct episodes of like if, csi or something so that they can just like if you don't enter filmmakers anonymous you might end up like steve bannon i mean you know i i don't mean to be like this but you know if hitler had gotten into art school yeah yeah you know yeah, yeah that's like maybe the whole world would be anyway, different yeah. i've just tipped my hat a little bit too much whoa, on, on my whoa uh, but uh <laughs> but but anyway american dharma is currently streaming on canopy for and, free for free and yeah, if you have a library card and it's errol morris and errol morris is amazing and it's his newest film and uh and i appreciate the fact that in a time when when people who agree with Errol Morris would not want him to make a documentary about some a subject matter like this, that he just turned full steam into it and, and did it because not necessarily because it's unpopular, but I'm sure he knew it would be controversial. But I think that even the con the controversialness of it ended up kind of burying it. Like, I don't think it played in theaters or anything. And, uh, you know, Errol Morris is one of our best documentarians and people should see it. My short end for this week is another uh, documentary, which uh, also showed at Sundance, and we will uh, talk about more in, in the future. But uh, hopefully, to my knowledge, has not yet been released, called The Dissident. Mm -hmm. And The Dissident is all about the Washington Post reporter Khashoggi, who was murdered inside the Saudi Arabian consulate oh, inside yeah. of Turkey. This was, a, this was a big story. Like MBS. A, yeah, exactly. This is uh, ex exactly the crown prince. I, you of, know how I, can, how I can always remember him is that somebody said, MBS stands for Mr. Bonesaw. <laughs> God, really? Yeah. Uh, wow, we're getting all political. Yeah, it's it's actually Mohammed bin Salam. Salman, I thought. Uh, sorry, you're right. Mohammed bin Salman. And really, it's it's an important work. It's an important work that may not get seen. I mean, it's it's it hasn't been it hasn't had a any announcements regarding it, hmm. and and it does need to be seen. Uh, we Jake Swanko, of course, was the one of the uh, producers and shot the movie, and uh, they he of course uh, shot uh, Icarus as yeah. well, and was one of the producers of Icarus, which won the Academy Award uh, a couple years ago. And I think that this movie has potential; it really does. Of course, there is fear that when you're going up, you know, MB against MBS and Saudi Arabia, there might be people who really don't want that story out there. Yeah, there are people who don't want that story out there, and some of them are in our government um, because they're trying to sell billions of dollars worth of military aircraft. And oh, they did. They yeah. did actually sell billions of dollars worth of military aircraft, and they wanted that deal to go through, even though uh, there was an act of Congress to prevent it. So. There was an act of Congress to prevent it because... <laughs> Because they, this guy that we did it with conspired to murder somebody and like basically just had him like they set up a murder room at a consulate and murdered a guy in, in cold blood. And, and you know, it, it doesn't stop there. Like you can Google this. This is all 100% true. Like just in January, 
uh, private jets with uh, henchmen from uh, Saudi Arabia showed up to kidnap uh, an American and take them to Saudi Arabia, kidnap a YouTuber. Uh, it's like, really? Yeah, I know. It's like these are the types of things. Say it was Jake Paul. Uh, and it, it, it Paul. <laughs> I don't think it was either one of them, but okay. it was someone who had been critical of the Saudi government. Okay. And it's like and uh, it was foiled by the FBI. I mean, Whoa. the FBI foiled, foiled this uh, assassin. Sorry, this kidnapping attempt. So it's like, um, well, we have to protect our natural resource of influencers. Uh, well, maybe, uh, maybe the American was was formerly uh, a Saudi who had, uh, who had immigrated here or something. I, I don't have all the the details of it, but regardless, Gross. it's like this is the type of thing that uh, between other countries would be considered acts of war. If you yeah. go into another country and you're trying to kidnap someone and uh, take them to disappear them to who knows what it's like that's uh these are these are things that like wars get started over that Ugh. it's like it's i know it's it's crazy well uh i i uh, you know there's the old chinese uh, curse may you live in interesting times oh well, these are really interesting we're, yeah we're living uh, in some of the most interesting times of my life and uh you know uh, i i will live in boring times in exchange for less interesting documentaries but I feel like uh, this this period of time is going. To, there are going to be movies and documentaries and whatnot made about this moment in time that are going to ripple forward for the next century. Yeah, there, there's a, I'm just going to give it away since we're already going down this path. But like uh, Saudi Arabia employs one of the largest sort of like online uh, troll fleets like people who work for the government who can uh twitter is like incredibly popular in saudi arabia and they employ people who uh basically trend hashtags and you know thousands and thousands and thousands of fake accounts which Ugh. twitter has has put a stop to some of them but it's like this is a uh uh, this is a uh, whole thing. And like when The Dissident actually uh, first premiered at Sundance, I had heard that trolls had immediately jumped in uh, from uh, Saudi Arabia to uh, like after the premiere to get it like a, a, a very low rating like on IMDb. Of course, it's uh, right now it's like a nine out of ten on IMDb. But it's like they had uh, like immediately had all these people launching these. Well, fake it's like reviews, all the people so. who are pissed off about, you know, uh, Star Wars or whatever, like, you know, or uh, it's not, though, because those people saw Star Wars. This is an army of people. But there were like about was it Wonder Woman. It was it was maybe one of the superhero movies that had a woman in the lead. And before it even came out, it had like, you know, a super low IMDb rating because troll armies had who decided were, that they, this is what, a bunch of fucking incels out there had decided that they hated that women were getting to be the lead in something and decided to just troll, troll, troll it down. I remember hearing that about long before it was even released, though, there was people who were really heavily trolling uh, uh, Ghostbusters. They didn't want. Ghost, that was it. That was it. Yeah. Ghostbusters. They didn't want they didn't want the female version of Ghostbusters to so exist. So stupid. Uh, yeah. You know what? Who cares if it's a reboot? And who cares if it's? I mean, it's a reboot regardless. And who cares if the the gen the gender swapped in that in such a way? It's like, is that really? Does that really ruin what came before for you? If you're so precious about it? Well, I mean, and when I go down Twitter holes, uh, which is easy to do, you know, if you see something that's trending and you and you kind of follow it and just start getting angrier and angrier. What I keep being reminded by people is Twitter is not the world. And so, you know, it's like of it's not that many people, you know, per capita are actually on Twitter, but it does have the ability, as you're saying, with this documentary to kind of sway world events or to influence people to do stuff. And, uh, you know, it, it's just kind of that completely unregulated nature of the Internet that uh, that allows people to do terrible things if they have enough numbers. I just wonder, like, what? 
if if you're a professional troll, like your job is to be a troll. You're, mm. Like you're, 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 you know, you applied for the job, you gave him a yeah, resume. You you got you got your troll card. What, yeah, yeah. You know, like what is your day like? That just sounds like the worst possible thing. Oh my god! It just and and then like once like this won't be a viable career path for very long. <laughs> <laughs> Five ten years from now, this is not going to be something that anyone's going to do. I hope. I I guarantee you that there are probably uh, troll armies working on getting the little verified check marks next to their names. So <laughs> you know how hard I had to work to get verified. Oh my yeah. god! Did you get verified? I did get verified oh, on Twitter. Yeah, I had to like s- send them my driver's license and all kinds of really? stuff. Really? Oh, yeah. God, I'd actually have to use Twitter, I guess. Then I, to, I've been using Twitter for a long time, and honestly, I think it's just a great place to talk to people about movies and stuff and then like when it starts getting political it gets gross because the thing about twitter is it's really easy to like everything you say is like a mic drop so it's like you know here's why you're completely wrong and here's why ghostbusters is awesome mic drop exactly and and you know you don't have in that character thing uh you know you don't have enough uh space to uh to really get into any nuance that being said i do have a fake novelty account if anyone wants to try and figure out what my fake novelty oh, twitter account is go for it no no please uh, do it uh, i'm really happy about my fake novelty account you know what it is right i do know what it is but i'm not gonna i'm not gonna plug it right here i'll let people try to figure out what your account is great yeah okay all right uh, so ben that does it who should we thank well uh number one a number one is alana cody she made it happen. She always makes it happen. And I'd like definitely Ben Katz, who uh, you and I have not given an easy assignment to this week. No, no. He's Oof. got a he's got a monumental task. And what's Sorry, what's ben. even worse, Ben, is that oh, we're going to try and squeak out an extra episode. Yeah, but you don't have to. They don't have to happen to, at the same time. Yes, they do. We're going to like we're going to like double episode crazy. So now Ben Katz is hearing this going like what? Nobody told me. Uh, uh, well, we'll have a few days between. But yeah, we want to we want to. We want to cram Sundance out, so another episode coming real another, quick. Another Sundance, yes. So uh, we also want to uh, thank Kay Zalatrakshi for whom, uh, who, who maybe is listening for whom to this. the bell tolls. I no, hope not. No, okay, no. <laughs> it tolls for okay. No. Uh, th- thank the, the thank wedding you. bells because apparently he's engaged now. That's what I heard. Um, but uh, uh, all the music you heard was from Kay Zalatrakshi. You can find him at www.musicbykays.com. Please just go to Kay's website and just literally say anything, like just be like tag. Baba Booey, whatever you want to say, just say it, say something to, to <laughs> how about congratulations on your pending nuptials? Yeah, exactly. And also hire him to do all of your music and or color correction and or CGI for your next project. Oh God. Yes, exactly. You need an explosion case. Case has gotcha. Yeah. Illy, where, where can people find you? Find me at uh, Hot Rod Cameras, hotrodcameras.com. And uh, Ben, where can people find you? Benrockonline.com. Until next time. That, in, yes, that. And that wraps us up. Thank you. We will see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. On the Cinematography Podcast at under which preposition? It's on. We'll figure it out. Yeah. Bye. This has been the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.